God says, but they'll decide whether it's a good day or a bad day, no matter what the heavens say. At any rate, the heavens say this year it should be on Monday, not two days later. <coughs> so we'll do what the heavens tell us, not what the Jews do. So this atonement is coming Monday, and we'll have services here at our regular service time of 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock Mountain Time for Day of Atonement on Monday. And you can translate uh, the time based on where you live. And of course, the Feast of Tabernacles follows five days after Atonement. <coughs> this year, the Feast, again according to the heavens, falls from the 15th to the 22nd of October. Sabbath to Sabbath, weekly Sabbath to weekly Sabbath, the first day being the 15th, a weekly Sabbath, and the last great day also being then on a weekly Sabbath, the eighth day of the feast. So uh, we will have service on the 15th at, one, at 11 o'clock and at 2 o'clock. 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock next Sabbath, uh, first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, translate that time to your area. And the day after that, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make announcement of the continuing schedule, but I wanted to let you know today that next Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, since it is the also high day and holy Sabbath of the feast, we'll have the two services, 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock next Sabbath. So if you tune in at 1, you'll, we'll be having potluck and you'll be hearing nothing. I uh, had a nice card here from you brethren in the church uh, regarding the death of my sister, which happened uh, last week, and I do appreciate the thought that is behind that to the family of Rebecca. Now, let's get on today with the sermon. Normally, I don't give a title to sermons until afterward, and then people ask me what was the title on that, and I have to think about it and come up with something that fits it. But today, I have it ahead of time, <coughs> so that will relieve you who have to put it on the Internet and so on, or on tapes. This sermon is entitled, Steadying the Ark, A Short Story of Uzzah. Steadying the Ark, A Short Story of Uzzah. Let's go back to 2 Samuel and read a brief account of what happened there. 2 Samuel 6, uh, they were moving the ark. I might get more into the actual story of what was going on at the time a little later. But let's see what happened here in 2 Samuel 6. They were bringing the ark of God up. Uh, the ark named after God in verse 2. And verse 3, they set the ark of God upon a new cart. Uh, God had instructed Moses originally, and we'll go back to some of that original instruction here in a little bit, uh, that if it was to be hauled, it was to be on a new cart, not something that had been used for some other purpose in the past, but a new cart because it was something that God had instructed to be made, and he didn't want just any old cart that had been used for other purposes to haul his ark. His name was upon it. 
So it set on a new cart there in verse 3, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So it was not being carried by six Levites with the staves that had been designed to be on the side of it like you do uh, maybe a coffin. Uh, but this was set on this new cart, and they had two drivers, Uzzah and Ohio. Now, when you understand the story, David had 30,000 chosen men, and he had decided at this juncture that the ark should be brought to Jerusalem. And I suspect that Uzzah and Ahio were men of good reputation, men who had been appointed, who had been chosen in specific for a very, very important job here. This is the ark of God, designed specifically by God and given a great deal of instruction on what was to be done with it and who and how. So these weren't just two people that they sort of picked out of a crowd and said, we'd like you to to bring this ark up. Uh, You know, they they weren't just regular truck drivers uh, that needed to haul a cargo like we might have today on the highways. Uh, You know, you pick up a cargo, doesn't matter what truck gets it or who's driving, and you haul it from San Francisco to Seattle or wherever. And uh, not much is thought about it one way or another. But this was something special, something David was having done because it was a holy, righteous, very, very important thing to be done. So I'm sure that these two men uh, were chosen partly because of their background, as of being a Levite, uh, and partly because of their reputations, Uh, of being upstanding men in the nation of Israel. So, they were chosen. They brought it out, uh, and these two drove the new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. So, Ohio may have been in front, uh, leading the oxen, to make sure they stayed on the road, stayed in the path, and didn't stray off and go down through the rocks or something. And apparently Uzzah was back beside the ark. It wasn't the kind of cart like a uh, a covered wagon where you sat up on it and drove it apparently. It was just a cart. And one was leading the oxen and the other was back behind to make sure everything stayed in order there. So Uzzah was back, obviously, beside it, and Ahio was in front of it. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Eternal on all manner of instruments, uh, made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. So this was a very, very big deal in the nation of Israel at that time. Everybody was happy, they were joyous, they were excited. They played on all kinds of instruments, probably sang songs. Anyway, they were accompanying, they were anticipating and waiting for it to arrive. So was David. And when they came to uh, Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it 
for the oxen shook it, or as the Hebrew says, stumbled. So, the oxen made a misstep, apparently. Uh, commentators say they might have uh, gone a little wild and tried to run, or they might have kicked or something. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, that's just a matter of imagination and opinion, exactly what happened. But something happened to cause it to be unsteady and perhaps to be in danger of falling off the cart or of uh, hitting the ground, being damaged, whatever. Anyway, Uzzah reached up to steady it. The anger of the Eternal was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. So he was standing right beside it, reached out to steady it, and died on the spot, right beside it where he touched it. Wow. Do you think that the instruments made of fir wood and the harps and the psalteries and the timbrels and the cornets and the cymbals ceased playing about then? That a grave hush overcame the people of Israel when the ark looked like it was in danger and Uzzah reached out to steady it, to take care of it, to protect it, to save it from damage, and died. And that would have been quite a startling thing to have happen. You had to be there, <laughs> to use that expression, to understand the gravity of the situation when everybody had been so excited and suddenly an apparent disaster occurred. Now notice David's reaction even. Verse 8, And David was displeased because the Eternal had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And uh, Perez Uzzah put together means the breach of Uzzah or the break of Uzzah. So there was a breach, obviously, between God and Uzzah there. And David named it that. So it displeased him that God had killed Uzzah. So David the king was having trouble understanding why Uzzah died when he was just trying to help. And David was afraid of the Eternal that day and said, How shall the Ark of the Eternal come to me? He was having it brought to Jerusalem, and he saw Uzzah die, and he thought, Do I want that thing in Jerusalem after all? Uh, he knew his history. He knew some of his sins, all of his sins. He knew his problems, and he thought, here was an upstanding man, Uzzah, of the Levites, one we had chosen specifically to do this job, and he just tried to help, and he died. I'm scared to have it come to me. What's going to come upon me if I have the ark in my possession? So he was afraid of God. How will it come to me? So David would not remove the Ark of the Eternal to him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And it continued there in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. 
Well, David was afraid to bring it. He said, just leave it there. <laughs> just take it over there to this Goodite's house and just leave it there. Don't want anything to do with it. I'm scared and I'm displeased with God for having destroyed Uzzah. Now think about that. What was Uzzah's intention? Was it a bad intention? If you had asked Uzzah before, <laughs> before he fell down dead, I'm sure Uzzah would have said, I just wanted to help. I just wanted to steady the ark. I only wanted to save the ark because it was in danger of being damaged. It was in danger of being destroyed. So I just reached out to help. Now that sounds like a good intention, doesn't it? What's wrong with that? I went through several comments by various Bible commentators on this to see what they had to say about it. And some of them drew some spiritual analogies, which have some merit. Some didn't really comment. And the overall impression was we don't really grasp and understand what's going on here. So today, let's look deeper into this subject. And let's see if we can understand why a man with apparently good intentions, just trying to help, just trying to save the ark, could have gotten in enough trouble to cause God to strike him dead right on the spot. Does it sound fair that somebody that's trying to help would incur the wrath of God? Does that sound like a good thing? No wonder David had trouble with that. Let's go back to Exodus 25. Let's understand some things. <clears throat> Remember what Paul said, that the things of the past have been written down for those who are here at the end to learn from. That this is a history for those upon whom the ends of the world have come. Now, if the ends of this age, of this world, have come upon anybody, it's you and me. <laughs> We're here. We're right at the end. So if it meant something in Paul's day, what he saw happening around him, then it certainly means something for today. Everything in this book is written essentially for the church. And if it's written for the church, it's written for the end-time church above all. Now, the Old Testament things, you might say, were written for the early New Testament church, that they might learn from them. But then why was the New Testament written? They didn't need it, but we do. So, it is a compilation of things. The Old Testament record was preserved for us. It wasn't done away with. It wasn't gotten rid of. And the New Testament was also preserved for us. So everything in this book was written and preserved, especially for us right now. So this story of Achan, this short story, <laughs> was written for us to come to have some understanding from. So let's approach it from that standpoint. You know, a lot of people do a lot of things, and they feel that they had good intentions and in so doing. They meant well, they meant right, they meant good, or they only wanted to help. 
Well, I guess one question we need to ask is, does God need our help? <laughs> right off the bat. God formulated a plan a long time ago to reproduce himself through humans, ultimately make them into God, and share his kingdom forevermore. That was his purpose and his plan from the beginning. And Satan derailed, apparently, Satan's plan even in the Garden of Eden by influencing mankind. Adam and Eve would have said, we, well, we have good intentions. Uh, that fruit looks good. And, and this guy says that God didn't really mean that and he wouldn't strike us dead. Uh, so this, this looks like a good creation of God, this fruit. It looks good. Probably it would taste good. And God made it, so what could be wrong? You know, you can begin to get human reasoning that this is something we ought to do. But how much help does God need from mankind? Adam and Eve sinned, and every man since has sinned, save he who was the second Adam who never sinned. And Israel, throughout its history, and mankind through its history, has a very terrible record of disobedience to God, disrespect to God and His ways, and yet God says in Romans 11:26, all Israel shall be saved. Now, how much help is God going to get from man to save Israel? I think most, a vast majority of the people who have lived whether they be Israelites by blood or Gentile by blood, are also going to be saved. God is a father, and he is going to be successful at what he sets his hand to do. So, how much help does he need? Let's go back to Exodus 25 and start specifically with the story of the ark. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. So this was a very special offering. They weren't to browbeat it out of anybody. They weren't to push them to do it. But this was to be an offering given only from a willing heart that they brought to God. Moses was to tell them that, the, that this needed to be done, and then it was up to them whether they willingly and uh, hopefully and thankfully could bring this offering. This is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass. There was no gold and silver in the Middle East, but there was some here. There's your big clue. Anyway, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins, unclean animals, by the way, badgers, uh, but they were to have their skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. There are no precious stones in uh, the Middle East either. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So God's saying from this offering of these 
very important and very exotic and expensive items, he is going to make a sanctuary so that he might dwell among them and have his own place, his own sanctuary there. According to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so you shall make it. So then he begins to give some very explicit instructions on exactly how to make this. That he'll give them the pattern, the use of the different uh, offerings that were brought, and they'll make it out of acacia wood. Acacia, apparently, is what this is. Shittle wood sounds kind of barnyardy, but uh, acacia is probably correct. Uh, it was a thorny uh, type of tree with a brownish uh, yellow wood, a very hard wood, and a very beautiful grain to it. And it had a propensity for keeping insects away. They would not bore in it or termites wouldn't eat it or whatever. Uh, uh, there are some varieties that I think may have been this in the Middle East, but it also is very similar to one found in North America. Uh, it's very similar to what they think this may have been. So, it was to be made of this special tree. And then he gives the size of it. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. That's just a little, well, depending on which cubit you use, it's either just under or just over four feet long. Uh, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, so about two feet wide and about two feet high. So roughly two by two by four. Not very big, very small. It was to contain... The Ten Commandment stones, which obviously weren't very big to fit in this, and it was to contain uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and so on. So it wasn't very big, very small. And overlay it with pure gold, within and without shall you overlay it. So nothing would show but gold. The wood wouldn't show at all. And shall make upon it a crown of gold round about, and four rings of gold, and put them in the four corners two rings one side and two on the other, and then staves to carry it through the rings with, and they were to be overlaid with gold. So when this thing appeared, it was going to be completely covered in gold. And they were to put into the ark, verse 16, uh, the testimony which I shall give you. And then it was to have a mercy seat of pure gold, and it was to be the same size as the top. So overlaid with gold and then a mercy seat built, and it was to be pure gold. And two cherubims of gold, of beaten work, shall you make them, and put at the ends of the mercy seat, facing each other with their wings outspread. So two angel figures, and God must have given them a pattern of what the angels looked like. Uh, we don't know exactly what the angels looked like. We have some descriptions in the Bible to some degree. But God must have given them exact instructions on just what cherubim looked like. So, I don't want to go through every detail of this, but the point to be made is, this is something special to God, something that was to be very special to them, and that they were to look to it. Uh, then they were to make 
golden candlesticks or candlestick and to have three uh, holders on either side of it so that you had a total of seven candles. Those are mentioned in the book of Revelation regarding the church. And Revelation is an end-time book. So ultimately, this Ark of the Covenant and the candlestick, which was they were to build a table and it was all to be pure gold, and this candlestick was to stand on it, and ultimately, it was to have meaning for and to represent the seven churches at the end time of the book of Revelation. So this, right in the very construction of it, shows that it's for us right here, that, that this, is, this Ark of the Covenant is important for us. And then he goes on to show that the tabernacle that it was to be in was to be made with fine linen in chapter 26, and blue and purple, and cherubims woven in, and then he gives the specifics of the length of the curtains and so on, and how that this uh, tabernacle was to be built, and uh, a lot of detailed instruction here for several chapters. It goes on and on. I don't know that it's important for us to examine all those details to make the points that I want to make today. It would take more time. But understand the exquisite detail that God went to. And then he talks to Aaron in chapter 28, or to Moses about Aaron, and how they were to make holy garments, and just exactly how they'd be built, and, and that there would be uh, precious stones that would represent each of the tribes of Israel on the breastplate, uh, and have the names of the children of Israel on them, just like the New Jerusalem will have the names of the tribes of Israel on it, and uh, this breastplate of judgment, so that God, through the ark, and through Aaron the high priest, God would make judgments and decisions based on which one of those stones would light up. And you know the story. So, they went to great detail to get this done. Then we have instruction also about uh, Aaron and how he was only to go into there uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement and make offering before God for the people of Israel. He had to cleanse himself and make offering for himself before he ever went in. So, uh, this was going to be where God dwelt, and God is holy, and mankind is not holy. <laughs> so, everything about it had to be done in a holy manner. Uh, here even it says on the, the breastplate that they were to make a carving here in verse 36 of chapter 28, that the, it would be engraved to say, holiness to the eternal. Verse 38, they made it with, or 37, they made it with blue lace and a mitre. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the eternal. So Aaron was very important to this as the high priest because they couldn't go to God except through the high priest. Now, Christ became uh, the only perfect high priest that ever was, and now we have to go through him. There was a veil in that tabernacle between the outer court 
and the inner that only Aaron could enter again on one day of the year. So now, when the veil of the temple was rent in twain, when Christ died, it gave us access to the Father. So access to our Father in heaven was denied mankind until Christ died. Now that's how important the symbolism of the ark and the tabernacle were in the plan of God to point to Christ himself. And Christ even said he would have an end-time high priest of men to represent the church of God. So what God started back here goes all the way through. Of course, Christ is always the high priest and always will be. But everything uh, connected with that is symbolic of Christ. So, this had been made with great detail to be a holy thing that Israel was to look to. Now let's go to uh, 1 Samuel 3. 1 Samuel 3. And pick up a little bit more of the story of the ark. This is going to become important to understanding some of the events that actually occurred in Uzzah's short story. 1 Samuel 3. The child Samuel ministered to the Eternal before Eli, and the word of the Eternal was precious in these days. There was no open vision. Precious doesn't mean it was well thought of. Precious means that it was hard to find. Uh, like looking for gold, it's hard to find. Uh, so the word of God in those days was hard to find. There wasn't any clear vision, no clear understanding of what it was that God might want. Now, Eli was a man who had been the priest or the judge for a long time, and his sons had departed from God and done things ungodly. Uh, so here was Samuel, who was in training. Remember, his mother had uh, dedicated him to the service of God when he was born. And here he was as a child servant to Eli. And Eli laid down in his place at night, and his eyes began to wax dim. He couldn't see, and, uh, and so on. And in verse 4, God called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli said, I called you not. Go back to sleep. And the Eternal called again, Samuel. Samuel rose, went to Eli, and said, Here I am. You called me. And he answered, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Eternal. Hadn't had direct contact. Neither was the word of the Eternal yet revealed to him. Remember, it was precious in those days, hard to find. And he had not had any contact with God personally, and he didn't know the ways and the word of God. Apparently, working for Eli, he didn't learn much. The Eternal called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Eli perceived that the Eternal had called the child. Because he knew he hadn't. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went back to bed. And the Eternal came and called Samuel, Samuel, and he said, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, 
at which both the ears of everyone that hears it shall tingle. And that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. So Samuel laid down, and then he got up and opened the doors, as was his custom. And of course, Eli was wondering what's going, what's, what happened last night. So he quizzed him, and Samuel told him the whole story. He didn't hide anything. I imagine he was trembling and scared because he was about to tell Eli that he was going to die <laughs> and that the curse would not be removed from his house. Of course, God had told Samuel that he had already told Eli this. But Samuel still didn't want to repeat it. Uh, he was scared. Anyway, verse 19, Samuel grew and the Eternal was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, this is all going to be tied in with the Ark of the Covenant. Chapter 4, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, the Israel went out and fought the Philippi, uh, Philistines. I started to say Philippines. Maybe they were. Uh, and the Philistines arrayed against Israel, and they slew uh, about 4,000 men. So Israel lost the battle that day. Didn't do so good. They came to the camp and had to report that they had had trouble. Uh, let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal out of Shiloh, he says at the end of verse 3. When it comes among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So they said, you know, we had a battle. We lost 4,000 people. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe if we have that, it'll save us. So even though there was no real understanding in that day, they had some clue that the Ark of the Covenant might be very important, and it was up at Shiloh. So they sent, and they brought the Ark, uh, it came into the camp in verse 5, and all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. So, uh, like it echoed. The echo of all their shouting and joyous rang again or came back to them in the form of an echo. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what noise is this great shout among the Hebrews? They just got kicked around today. What are they shouting about? And they understood that the Ark of the Eternal was come into the camp. So they must have had some spies, and somehow they learned that this had happened. And they were afraid, because they thought maybe God had come into the camp and said, Woe to us, verse 7. And again, woe to us. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So the Philistines at least had some <laughs> thought of history here. Uh, so they said, be strong and be men, Philistines, that you be not servants to the Hebrews. So in other words, we're going to have to fight and overcome not only Israel, but their God as well. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man to his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. That's a lot of death and destruction. Now they thought, if we have the ark will be okay. So they took the ark into their possession. 
They went and got it and thought that they would have the approval of God having obtained the ark. But it didn't happen that way, did it? Not 4,000, but 30,000 died now. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. So here begins the curse on uh, Eli's family, and it has to do with the ark. They were fighting uh, the Philistines and thought the ark would deliver them, and it didn't. Uh, and there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh, where Eli was. He came, and lo, Eli sat on a seat by the wayside of watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, he was concerned, and he also was concerned about his sins and what God would do. So the ark was tied in, the ark of God, with the judgment of God on Eli. And all the city cried out into verse 13. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What means the noise of this tumult? And here comes the man and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98. His eyes were dim and he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? What happened to the army? What's going on? And he said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's been a great slaughter among the people. You two sons are dead, and the ark of God is taken away, stolen. And it came to pass, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck broke, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. So in the same day, the two sons died, and Eli himself died, just as God had said and had told Samuel. And it all was tied in with the ark of God. Now, where's God in all this? First of all, Israel goes and gets the ark, perhaps inadvisedly, thinking that would save them. And they had good intentions, didn't they? If we go get the ark and we bring it here, uh, then God will surely bless us. We will have the grace and the favor of God if we do this thing. And they did that thing, and then 40,000 died. <laughs> and the Philistines stole it! Now, how, how would God permit the Philistines to steal the Ark of the Covenant? God had instructed Moses so carefully how that was to be built, how it was to be handled, what was to be done with it. And he was going to dwell in it. That was God's house. And the ark represented the holy of holies of God. And God let it be stolen. How could that happen? Couldn't God protect the ark? Couldn't he keep the Philistines from taking it? I mean, they were uncircumcised Gentiles. Remember what David said? How can this uncircumcised Philistine stand against the armies of the eternal God? No one was there to save the ark. <laughs> it got stolen. God's very own ark, his very own house got stolen. Well, the ark wasn't the house, but you know what I mean, the tabernacle and the ark. And the ark was the centerpiece of God's house, the holy of holies, where God dwelt and before whom... 
Aaron knelt once a year and asked for forgiveness for Israel. So this was the most important thing that there was in Israel, the holiest thing. And within it were the stones with the Ten Commandments graven on them. The very law of God himself was stolen by the Philistines. I don't know why somebody didn't fix that. Why didn't somebody prevent that? Well, I guess it's kind of hard to prevent when 40,000 of you just died in a battle, <laughs> you know, and you couldn't preserve it. You couldn't take care of it. And God didn't either. God didn't either. Keep that in mind. Does God allow some things to happen? Does God always fix things? He will. But is He always in the interim? Does He always keep bad stuff from happening? I mean, nothing more important than this one. Not only will the old man fall off his chair and break his neck, but his daughter-in-law, verse 19, Phineas' wife, the daughter of one of the sons, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark was taken, her father-in-law and her husband was dead, she bowed and travailed, and her pains came upon her, and she died. They said to her, Fear not, for you have borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named, before she died, the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said again, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. So in her mind, this was a very, very important event, wasn't it? An event so important that she gave up and died in childbirth and named her child the Ark of God is taken. Now, chapter 5, the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, is God still involved? Let's see. Now, when the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So they had their idol, their main god was Dagon, the fish god, and they had a house built for it. And they thought that this would be quite interesting to take the Ark of the Covenant of Israel and put it in there beside their god. So they did that. Has Israel ever been turned over to Satan? Has the church of God ever been turned over to Satan? Has the ark of God ever been turned over to Gentiles and Satan? Anyway, yeah. guess you'd have to say it has. The early New Testament church was turned, basically disappeared, and the Catholic church took its place. Worldwide Church of God basically disappeared and an evangelical group kind of took its place. So they said it by Dagon. They thought they'd done something real bright here. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the eternal. <laughs> he just fell over in front of the ark. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. It's, it's nice that you can do that with your God, you know. If he falls over, you can set him up again. Uh, their God needed help, right? Their God had to have help. 
even the Catholics, you know, they say that 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 wafer and that wine is the actual blood and body of Christ. And there was a story that had been told over the years about how in one of the Catholic ceremonies they were there to take the wafer and the wine, and the priest happened to fumble and dropped one of the wafers, and it rolled down on the floor and eradicated it. Now, that's in their doctrine is the actual flesh of Christ. So the question was asked, can a rat eat your God? <laughs> and the same thing is true here. <laughs> can your God fall over? Do, can you rescue your God? Does your God need help? Does he need rescued? Does he need taken care of? Think about that. We're headed somewhere. He's fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the eternal, and they took Dagon and set him in his place. Now, be a good God and sit up now. And when they rose early on the morning, tomorrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Can your God lose his head? Can your God lose his hands? Can he only be a stump? Well, the Philistines' God could. I don't think the eternal God of heaven and earth can be treated that way. If you have that kind of God, I think you're in trouble. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Scared them. <laughs> Their God had been destroyed. He fell over one day, and the next day he was destroyed. And they were scared to go in there. Smote them with hemorrhoids, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. Kind of hard to sit down. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his sand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. What God? He was gone now. He's all broken up. So they said, We don't want this thing. Now Israel wasn't able to save the ark, right? 40,000 died and it was just marched off right in front of them. They couldn't save it. But now God has destroyed the Philistines' God, and they immediately say, let's get rid of this thing. We don't want it around. These hemorrhoids came on all of us. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and to them and said, what shall we do with this ark? Let's get rid of this thing. And they said, let the ark of God of Israel be carried about to Gath. And they carried the ark of Israel there. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Eternal was against the city with a very great destruction. So their, their elders had said, take it to Gath. Okay, we'll take it to Gath. And God intervened again. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had hemorrhoids in their secret parts. I'll leave that alone. Anyway, therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. <laughs> so the men of Gath... Uh, couldn't sit down anymore. So it was sent to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronauts cried out, saying, 
They have brought about this ark of the God of Israel to us, to slay us and our people. Well, anywhere they sent it now, people were scared to death. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go into its own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all that city too. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men that died not were smitten with hemorrhoids. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Did God need any help? Was there an Israelite on the premises? Huh? You see anything about Israelites being there and taking care of these Philistines? I don't. God allowed it to be stolen, but he also took care of the problem himself, didn't he? I think that is a very interesting concept to understand. God was able to take care of the holy things of God. Chapter 6, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests, the diviners, saying, What shall we do with this ark? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering. Then you shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. They were still having trouble in the outhouse. They wanted some relief. Then said they, What shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? (laughs) This is interesting. They answered, Send five golden hemorrhoids and five golden mice. (laughs) So, uh, something that reflected the pain that they had been suffering in five unclean mice. Now, what kind of sacrifices does God accept? Did he tell them to sacrifice mice upon the altar? Or pigs on the altar? Or unclean animals? No, it was sheep and goats and cattle and so on. But the Philistines, you know, they didn't know. They they worshipped mice and, and uh, stone dagons. Five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on you all and on your lords. So send an offering of hemorrhoids and mice to God. And make images of your emeralds and images of your mice that mar the land. Uh, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. For adventure, he will lighten his hand from off you and from off your gods and from off your land. And why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians did? Again, they knew history. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God worked mightily among them. So they said then, verse 7, Make a new cart and two milk cows on which there has come no yoke and tie the uh, cattle to the cart and bring their calves home and take the ark of the Lord and lay it on the cart and put the jewels of gold and return him for a trespass offering and so on and see that it goes up the way of his his coast to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. We just all got hemorrhoids at once. And the men did so. And they took them and tied them on, shut the calves up. 
And they laid the ark of the eternal, verse 11, on the cart, and the coffer with the mice of gold, and the images of their hemorrhoids. <laughs> this is just funny to me. Uh, I guess it wasn't funny to them. Uh, so they went to Beth, Beth Shemesh, along the highway, uh, bellering as they went, and turned not aside. And they of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest. These were Israelites now. And they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. It wasn't covered. It was out in the open on this cart. So it came to the field of Joshua Bethshemite and stood there where there was a great stone. And they claved the wood of the ark and offered the cattle as a burnt offering to the eternal. And the Levites, the right ones, took the ark of the eternal and all these things that came with it and made sacrifices to God. And when the five lords, verse 16, of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Akron the same day. So they were relieved, I'm sure. These are the golden hemorrhoids which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering to the eternal. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, for Gath, and for Akron. God had done terrible destruction in all those places because they'd stolen the ark and the golden mice, and so on. Now, they left this ark there in the field of Joshua. Verse 19 now. And then God, he, smote the men of Bethshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the eternal. Even he smote of the people 50,070 men. He killed more Israelites probably than he had Philistines right there. The Philistines had only killed 40,000 Israelites. Because these people came by and looked into the ark. Because the Eternal had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Bathsheba said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jearim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the Ark of the Eternal. Come down and you take it. <laughs> we don't want it either. Come fetch it. Come get it. Now let's go back to Numbers. Keep your finger here. To Numbers uh, 4 for a moment. And understand what God had said here in terms of this Ark. Numbers 4. And let's go down to about verse 15. <clears throat> Here he's been talking uh, in this chapter about the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation and about the most holy things. And what God is giving here in chapter 4, to be brief, is instruction upon when Israel would move forward, you know, when the cloud would move forward and they were to follow it. Here were instructions on how to take down the tabernacle, how to take down the ark, how to pack it, how to cover it, all the things that they were to do with the uh, the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant. So in 15, he says, And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is set to move forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, they were to carry it with those staves, which Exodus had told us were to remain in it and never be taken out. 
and they could take it by the staves only and carry it. That they had been authorized to do. Only the sons of Kohath. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. So the tabernacle, the especially the Ark of the Covenant, was not to be touched. He could have coverings draped over it, but don't touch it in so doing, and only take it by those staves, which were not declared holy, but were declared to be able to be used to pick it up. They shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. My eye doesn't fall on it, and it isn't right here. Uh, let's see. Verse 19, Do to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Uh, and they'll have this burden. But they shall not go in to see when the holy things are covered, lest they die. So they weren't even to see. That's the point I was trying to get in verse 20. They weren't to touch it, and they weren't to see it. Now, when they looked in the ark, when it came back from the Philistines, back here in 1 Samuel, uh, what happened? 50,070 of them died. They had to take a quick look for that many overnight to get a look in there. <laughs> Maybe they opened it up and people just paraded by and looked to see, hey, this is exciting. Let's look at the ark. Let's see what's in it. Anyway, into verse six or into chapter six in First Samuel, you guys come fetch it. So the men of Kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the eternal and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the eternal. And it stayed there for a long time, twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the eternal. So there's quite a history building up here, isn't there? Uh, you take care of it. If we get it, we'll have the things of God and we'll be in good, God's good grace. 40,000 died. Philistines took it, stole it. Uh, God allowed it. And then God didn't send Israel to rescue it. He took care of it himself. And pretty soon the Philistines said, get that thing out of here. What do we need to do? Make some mice and hemorrhoids and send it away. Okay, whatever you say, we, you know, it's done. We get rid of it. So then Israel got it, and surely they knew it wasn't to be touched or looked into. They had the record of Moses. And 50,070 of them died overnight. So now they sent it up here to Eliezer and said, you take care of it. And it sat there for 20 years. They were all so scared. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return to the eternal with all your hearts, verse 3, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts to the eternal and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, does that sound anything like the plethora of prophecies that we've gone through in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Minor Prophets about turning to God with our whole heart, specifically of Jeremiah, who says when we seek him with our whole heart, we'll find him. Samuel told them the same thing. 
Then the children of Israel did put away their gods and serve the eternal only. Uh, and then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you to the eternal. So he did that, and uh, God began to hearken to them. Now then the people, let's, let's, let's pick it up here in 8. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel and Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after money and took bribes and perverted judgment. And the elders of Israel went to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons walk not in, the, in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Eternal. Now, here's a very interesting situation where Samuel's sons were not obeying God. So a lot of people here, the elders of Israel and others probably came with them, and said, uh, you know, Samuel, uh, your sons aren't obeying God, and, and uh, you're not doing what's right here. Uh, we want to get rid of you. We think we ought to have somebody else in charge. We want a king. Now, Samuel had had a pretty good reputation in Israel. Remember, he had prayed to God and, and got relief, and he advised them. And God had used him to give a prophecy to Eli. And Samuel basically was uh, following God, but he let his sons get out of hand. And now people thought that God could not take care of Israel and that Samuel needed to be replaced by a king. So they decided that's what should be done. Now, what was their intent? What was their intent here? Their intent was to save Israel from Samuel, to get rid of Samuel and provide a king that would do a better job and take care of matters better than Samuel was. So they felt that they had good intentions. They felt that God would be on their side if they went to Samuel and straightened him out and got him to do what he ought to do, because his sons were not obeying, and that was, in their opinion, Samuel's problem. So they thought they were doing the right thing, didn't they? I'm sure they did. We, you know, Samuel's not doing his job, and we need to, we need to find a solution here. They thought God would be on their side, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I, I would think so. They thought they were just trying to help. They thought they were trying to fix a problem. Verse 7, The Eternal said to Samuel, Hearken to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Were there things wrong with Samuel's family, and in that sense with Samuel himself? Yes, there must have been. But they thought that they should fix this, and that Samuel was a problem, and if they could fix Samuel, then they would have the love of God, and the grace of God, and the forgiveness of God, and God on their side. 
Now, God didn't look at it that way, did he? He said, it isn't you they've rejected Samuel. Now, Samuel must have had his problems. His son certainly did. And it was within Samuel's family. But God said, it isn't me, or it isn't you, it's me that they've rejected. Now, was God going to give them grace and favor here? No, he said, let them have a king. They've rejected me, so give them a king. Do what they say here. Let them have a king. And I'll tell you what will happen. <laughs> the king will tax you, and he will put your sons into his army, and he will use you as his servants, and you won't like what happens. But go ahead. Let them have their way. They're going to find out that this isn't going to work out too well. Verse 18, And you shall cry out in that day when this king's done all this, because of your king which you shall have chosen you. And the Eternal will not hear you in that day. So, God wasn't going to be on their side. God, because they rejected Samuel, whom God had placed there. Now, Samuel was God's problem, right? And when these elders interfered, God got upset. He said, all right, give them a king. They'll find out that they should be worshiping me instead of that king. And you won't like it, and God won't hear you. So God wasn't on their side. He was letting them learn a very, very hard lesson there. That their, all their good intentions and in thinking they were going to save Israel from Samuel wasn't going to work out. Now, this is all connected to the ark as well. Uh, let's go back to Second Samuel 6. Hey, I'm almost out of time here. Second Samuel 6. <clears throat> this short story is turning into a long sermon. Now, we already read how the ark was up there, and they drove the cart, uh, Uzzah and Ohio, and then Uzzah had tried to steady the ark. And he died right there, uh, verse 7. And David was displeased, and so on, and he wouldn't remove the ark. So, let's pick up the story again there. David was afraid of the ark of the, of the eternal that day and said, How shall the ark of the eternal come to me? Verse 9. So he wouldn't remove the ark of the eternal to the city of David. But David carried it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now it stayed there three months. And what happened? Verse 11. The eternal blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And then that story came to David that, you know, the ark isn't a curse. Uzzah was struck down for a different reason. These people have the ark, and they're being blessed. The Philistines had the ark, and they weren't blessed. But this, this man was. So David thought, well, maybe having the ark isn't so bad after all. So verse 12, he went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And they that bear the ark of the eternal had gone six paces, and he sacrificed oxen and fatlings, and David danced before the eternal with all his might, and he was girded with a linen ephod, and uh, he was shouting and dancing. And uh, verse 16, as the ark of the eternal came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Eternal, and she despised him in her heart. David was so excited 
that finally the ark was being returned to Jerusalem. And I don't know what he had under his kilt, not much apparently. And she saw him dancing. Anyway, they set it and pitched it before uh, the tabernacle. Uh, and they gave offerings and peace offerings before the eternal. And when they had finished all the offerings, uh, God was dealing with them. Uh, verse 19, he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread, a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine. So David gave everybody in Israel uh, a steak, some wine, and a cake of bread. So everybody was happy. They'd been dancing and singing and playing instruments, and they got a big, fine meal from the king, every one of them, man and woman. So everything was just great. And then David went home. Verse 20. David returned to bless his household. He blessed all Israel, and he came to share the good news of the ark of God coming back and how Israel was blessed and going to be blessed. And he was so excited. And Michael, uh, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. And she was so happy and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaidens of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Indecent exposure, David. You danced and the maidens of Israel saw everything you got. And David said to Michael, It was before the Eternal which chose me before your father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the eternal over Israel, therefore will I play, will I sing, will I dance to the eternal. I have a job to do here. But Michael didn't like it. And even his own wife was ashamed and angry at David for what he did to serve God and his happiness before God. She was way out of line, but she was going to save David here. Well, I thought that was God's job. Anyway, what happened? David said to Michael, oh, well, let's go on down, verse 22. I will yet be more vile than this. You claim me of being naked in front of the maidens of Israel? I'll be worse, and will be base in my own sight, and of the maidservants which you have spoken of, of of them shall I be had in honor. He says, I'm as, you think it's bad for me to show myself, I'm going to go sleep with them. <laughs> Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. I don't think she should have stood up against the king of Israel there. The king of Israel was God's situation. God had specifically chosen David. Not any of the other sons, but David the youngest and the least important in the eyes of others of the sons of Jesse, and chose him. And he called it. And, they, and God wasn't happy with Michael. He closed her womb. No more children. The maids of Israel had children by David, and he married a whole bunch of them later on. Now, let's take just a few more moments. Does God need our help? Did God take care of the ark? Did he ultimately get it back where it belonged? 
Did he ultimately punish those who used it wrong and bless those who used it right? Did he need any help? No, didn't need a bit. He, he took care of it. David is going to be king of all Israel in the millennium. Did, he, did God need Michael's help to get David straightened out? No, not a bit. God could handle David, and God has. David's going to be in the first resurrection, king of all Israel. Did Uzzah need to steady the ark? God had given specific instructions. That ark was not to be touched or even looked at or into. Now, Uzzah had every good intention, as did the elders that went to Samuel, as did Michael when she thought she could straighten David out. But Uzzah reached out thinking that if he steadied that ark and saved it from destruction, God would bless him. That he was doing the service of God. And God struck him dead on the spot. Do you need to save the church of God? Or is that God's job? What about Worldwide Church of God? God called Herbert Armstrong worked with him, taught him truth, and ultimately it became a very large organization and did a great deal of calling work to call people to God. And Herbert Armstrong grew old, and some people thought that they needed to save the church from Herbert Armstrong. So they stole it. God fired Joe Koch, but he wound up with it. And you know what? He had good intentions, Joe Koch did. Did you ever stop to think about it? What did Joe Koch intend to do with Worldwide Church of God? He intended to make it into an evangelical church, and there's some gigantic evangelistic or evangelical churches out there, and he was going to make it a giant of the giants. It was going to be bigger and better and more splendorous than ever before since he would take it back into mainstream Christianity and people would flock to it and make it even more glorious before God. That was his dream. How'd it go? Did 40,000 die <laughs> of famine and pestilence spiritually? Think back about when some ex-members of the Church of God, even before that, decided that the church needed saved from Armstrong. So they went to the state of California and they said, this church needs to be investigated. It needs to be taken over by a receiver. It needs to have Armstrong gotten rid of. And the state needs to take control of it because it needs saved from Armstrong. How'd that go? Well, God wrote thousands of years ago that someday the church would come apart and be spewed out of Christ's mouth. It was to go back into the world, wasn't it? it, it, it Sardis, it was going to die. Only a few names would be left in Sardis. God let it be taken into the captivity of the world, didn't he? He let it go back and be set up on its own base in Babylon, as Zechariah 5 says. 
Just like he let the Ark of the Covenant go over to the Philistines. He had a purpose in mind. He took care of the Philistine problem himself. He got the Ark back. Somebody tried to help him deliver the Ark and save it. And he died. Joseph Koch tried to save the church. And he died. And God spewed it out of his mouth anyway. And no Israelite was around to save it, just like they weren't around to save the ark, were they? Nobody could save it. It came apart. It got spewed. Now, God has said, out of that, he is going to create a gathering, and he's going to finish his work through the two witnesses and those whom he stirs to come to do it. So God is going to save the church. And he's going to do it through the leaders he calls and those that he's going to do it through. Now, if maybe some of those at some point come to the place that they think God can't gather it, he can't fix it with the current leadership, that they need to take a hand and save the church for God with good intentions, thinking if they get rid of those that they think God shouldn't have put in charge or can't control or can't fix, that they need to fix it. They need to save it. They need to steady the church. Have we learned anything today? <laughs> 